Hey, Weeds fans. I am Ezra Klein, one of the hosts of Vox.com's and Panoply Network's podcast, The Weeds. And I'm here with a special extra midweek episode. I got a chance recently to sit down and interview Ben Bernanke, the former Federal Reserve chairman. He just released a, a really great memoir, actually, of his time running the Federal Reserve called The Courage to Act. I recommend it if you, if you like reading memoirs of financial crises. This is definitely one of the ones you should read. This is a very in-the-weeds interview. We sat down and talked about what it is like to be the Federal Reserve Chairman, sort of how the mechanisms of control work, what the staffing is like, how do you get the information during something that is fast-paced and very opaque like a financial crisis. So this is really down deep in the mechanics of his job, which I found really interesting to hear, and I hope you will too. So here we are, Ben Bernanke, former Federal Reserve Chairman. Hope you enjoy. I'm going to start with a, a question that's actually a little bit simple. What does the Federal Reserve Chair do? <laughs> well, uh, multiple jobs. Very important job, of course, is managing monetary policy, which means following the economy very closely, following financial markets closely, and then uh, consulting with and talking with the members of the Federal Open Market Committee, the policy committee, and then managing that, those FOMC meetings when they come around eight times a year. That's a very big part of the job, but there are other parts. The Fed is, of course, also a regulator, regulates the banking system, and so the chair has to be sure that that process is going smoothly. There are many international dimensions to Fed activity. When I was chair, I frequently consulted with uh, central bank governors from around the world, finance ministers, I attended international meetings, just trying to make sure people understood what we were seeing in the economy and what we were thinking. Then, of course, the Fed chair is the head of a government institution, the Federal Reserve, which has thousands of employees and uh, provides a lot of different services to the financial system, for example. You know, it's a big job and, and has a range of responsibilities. Do you actually have, as Federal Reserve Chair, is, does a lot of the operational work fall on you? Are you trying to keep good staff economists from going off to other jobs? I mean, how much of the actual running of the institution is part of your day-to-day? Your -day? Well, day-to-day, -day, not that much. The, the chair has oversight responsibility. But there are executives and, and also board members who have specific areas in which they focus. For example, on the board, there's usually one governor who is most directly responsible for the internal workings of the board as, as an institution, issues of employee benefits and things of that sort. There's also a division of the Fed which also has oversight from the board that looks at the functionings of the reserve banks around the country. The vice chair plays a very important supporting role, currently uh, Stanley Fisher, in terms of making assignments to board members and making sure that all the major activities are covered. So the chair has broad oversight responsibilities, obviously kept well informed about what's going on, but not too much of the day really falls on mundane operational issues. So your book is not solely, but it is largely about your time as Fed Chair during the financial crisis. And it talks a lot about the different solutions and policies that the Fed put in place. But I'm, I'm interested in the precursor to those policies. My recollection of the financial crisis as a journalist was that it was a period when the information felt very bad, that the information we were getting was confusing, misleading, it was often wrong. It felt like it was following events at a, at a real lag. When you were trying to make decisions in real time, what kinds of information, what kinds of informational channels were you relying on, and which didn't you have that you wished you had? 
the Fed has ongoing and has always had ongoing relationships in the private sector. The Federal Reserve Bank of New York, for example, often functions as the Fed's eyes and ears on Wall Street. The uh, leadership, the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York is in constant contact with Wall Street executives and leaders who are aware of what's going on in their companies. There is a division of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York which has operational responsibilities for buying and selling securities and making monetary policy. But as part of that, th those senior staff also talk to market participants on a regular basis. And so we get, obviously, lots of data. We get lots of information about what's happening to interest rates in different credit markets and the like. But we also got a good bit of market chatter, commentary, and, and informal, informal thinking from people in the markets. What was missing... Now, there's some data which are better than others. Before the crisis, in a quite relevant sense, information on housing was not all we would like. Uh, it's actually improved quite a bit since then with things like the Case-Shiller uh, mm -hmm. House Price Index, for example. Areas of the economy like small business and business startups are very poorly represented in the data. So the data are, they're incomplete and they lag. It takes time to construct. You know, we're still talking now about, you know, GDP of a quarter or two ago. Right. What you try to do as in practice is you try to use whatever information sources you have, whether it's weekly unemployment claims or even more high-frequency things like credit card liabilities and how much people are charging on their cards as they buy goods and services. It's a bit of an art. But the issues were really not just information issues. I mean, they were conceptual issues. And, for example, trying to make a judgment in 2007 as to how serious the financial crisis was and could be we had the, the data, we knew the data, we knew what was happening in markets, but, but understanding the causes and the relationships requires analysis and, and judgment. When you came into the job, you had been an academic for most of your career. You'd done some government service as well. And it seems to me reading the book that all of a sudden you have to have a tremendous amount of expertise and make genuinely life or death decisions at the firm level on Wall Street. And how did you go about trying to figure out what's a fairly complicated and strange sector? How did you go about trying to figure out what would make sense in terms of one company acquiring another or what balance sheets really looked like? What prepared you for that or what did you So I, I never made any of those decisions in isolation. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of very capable people at the Fed, career staffers and senior policymakers. So, you know, for example, in... Bear Stearns or some decision like that. The broad decision-making, I had Hank Paulson, of course, who a Wall Street veteran, Tim Geithner, an experienced crisis fighter, and many senior staff like Don Cohn and others, senior staff and senior policymakers like Don Cohn, who had relevant information, relevant knowledge about these, about these things. And so my job, in some sense, was to get the information and coordinate the information, coordinate the activities. The actual negotiations, the actual termination of, of the details of contracts alike was performed by the Fed's legal staff and the Fed's financial experts. So you know, my job wasn't to know everything that could be known. I, there's no way I could do that. My job was to make use of the tremendous resources that the Fed has access to. What do you believe about Wall Street and the financial industry now that maybe you didn't when you came into the job? What did you learn about that part of the economy? Well, I learned quite a bit. I think that one thing that was impressed on us was Wall Street, before the crisis in particular, 
did not have as good a grip of the risks it was taking itself as it should have and as the regulators should have insisted that they have. So, for example, before the crisis, if you were to ask a large bank, hypothetically, suppose that house prices were to fall 20% or 30%, what would that do to your balance sheet? What would it do to your credit extension and the like? And they struggled to get a good answer within a reasonable amount of time because these firms are large and complex and they are exposed in many different ways, through derivatives, through securitized assets that they buy or sell. So one of the changes that was made when the Fed performs a so-called stress test now on banks, which requires them to see if they can survive even a very severe crisis, in addition to showing they have enough capital, they also have to show that they have good information systems and they can tell you plausibly, quickly, how their balance sheets would be affected by the hypothetical scenario that the Fed comes up with. There's been, during and since the financial crisis, a lot of skepticism about whether financial innovations have been net positive for the economy. There's a lot, particularly right now, about high-frequency trading. Are, are you confident that the sort of more complex corners of Wall Street are providing value in ways that maybe are now being dismissed because of a reaction to the crisis? Or, or do you put yourself with a skeptic? Well, I think it's case by case. I don't think you can make a generalization. Uh, Paul Volcker had an amusing comment. He said the last useful innovation on Wall Street was the ATM machine. I think that's a bit of an overstatement. I think some of the complex derivatives and other financial instruments can provide useful functions in terms of spreading risk and customizing uh, assets to, for the investors who, who want to hold them. But one thing about the financial system is that it's very complex and sometimes there can be unintended connections, unintended consequences. And it's a challenge to the regulators and the Congress to understand those understand those connections. I think one, yet another change that was made in the regulatory system after the crisis was to create um, responsibilities for the system as a whole. And before the crisis, there was no regulator, no institution that felt any particular responsibility to look at the entire financial system and look for possible weaknesses uh, anywhere in that system. Now, the Fed specifically, and also the Financial Stability Oversight Council, which is a council of regulators created by Dodd-Frank, do have that responsibility. And so there is there's now active efforts to identify risks to the system, including risks that might arise or that cut across different markets and different institutions. So I think that gives us more chance to understand these complex side effects that sometimes are created. But, you know, I don't believe that every innovation is good by any means, but I think that some of them are, and it's important for us as a country, important for the regulators to make sure that these uh, innovations are not ways of taking excessive risk. One thing that's been impressed on me in both reporting and kind of studying extended crises in government is that there is a human physical dimension to them, that over long periods of time, people's exhaustion, the time away from their families, the amount of stress and pressure, that it, it ends up actually being a real force in how these things do or don't get resolved. But it's often a little bit invisible to the people reporting on it or thinking about it. So can you walk me through a day for you during the financial crisis and, and sort of starting when you wake up and, and including not just what you did at the Federal Reserve, but also, what did you do around that to try to keep some amount of insulation so that you'd also be able to do it again the next day? 
So there's a normal schedule that involves a variety of things, including meeting visitors, uh, perhaps media. That's pretty important. Yeah, yeah. You want to maintain relationships with other institutions, with uh, the financial sector, with groups that are interested in what the Fed's doing, including consumer groups and the like. You may be thinking about a speech or a testimony you have to give, which means preparing or writing the text of whatever it is you're going to be presenting. The basic task of following the economy requires a certain amount of attention to the data as they come in, the analysis behind them, the uh, financial market developments and the like. There would be internal things like meeting with the staff person or a group of staff people about some project that's underway. And there would be time in the office. So, so it's, it's a variety of things during the day. There's a reasonable amount of travel involved going to the various reserve banks around the country. I made an effort in my first year as chairman to visit all 12 of the reserve banks scattered around the United States. I made it to 11, and then there was a last-minute trip to China in December, and I didn't get to Atlanta. But So there's a lot of that. Also international travel, like uh, international meetings, for example. So the ordinary routine is, is pretty full. There's a lot going on. A certain amount of uh, talking on the phone to members of Congress, to people in the business sector. The main feature of the crisis was that things were happening that were obviously not scheduled well in advance. The most extreme example of that would have been the Lehman weekend and what followed, where there was a, an FOMC meeting that Tuesday after Lehman failed. And so I had been preparing for that, and that meeting had to take place. But overlying that was you know the whole weekend that was engaged in dealing with the Lehman and AIG situations, a conference call on Tuesday morning that made me late to the FOMC meeting, which is an unheard of thing, ad hoc meetings with Congress, calls to legislators, a visit to the White House, those things that were coming on top of what ordinarily you would have to be worried about. And so it was a very chaotic time during the most intense phases of the crisis, you know, from August to uh, probably even the end of the year in 2008. Uh, I was working, you know, all the time, basically all weekend, late into the night sometimes, and I even slept in my office sometimes. So that was very difficult. More generally, over my time as chair, I, I did try to make sure I had time off that I uh, had dinner at home with, with my wife when I could. I would continue to be reading books. I'm an I'm a avid reader, and I like to read things other than economics, whether it's fiction, nonfiction, whatever it might be, uh, exercising, just trying to you know, take care of myself. I agree with you that uh, the physical element and the psychological element does become important in crises, and I was aware of that, enough aware of that, to try to make sure that I wasn't wasting my energy in things that could be delegated to somebody else or trying to make sure that, when possible, I could get home and have a decent meal. Right. What's the best book you read during the financial crisis? I'm not sure exactly of the timing, but a book that I read while I was chair, which I think was very informative, very interesting, was uh, Lords of Finance by Liaquat Ahmed, who I've known here because he has some connections to Brookings. It's about the experience of the world's central bankers during the 1930s and mistakes and, and problems that they made and encountered. Uh, and it was, so that, that doesn't quite qualify as a non-economics book. It was a history book. <laughs> That's pretty on point. Yeah, it's pretty much on point. <laughs> but it was a really interesting and engaging book. I mean, the kinds of examples of things that I would read that were unrelated were, I'm a big fan of uh, baseball statistics analytics. 
I had a little bit of correspondence during the crisis with Bill James, who is the guru of right. so-called sabermetrics. And he's written some interesting books, including a, what's called the historical abstract, which is an analysis of not just current baseball, but baseball going back to the 19th century. Yeah. So that was an example of something that, I, in fact, I had on my shelf ready to go, but obviously other things interfered. To some did you extent. read his book on, on trying to solve true crime? Uh, yes, I did, actually. Yeah, I did. But I read it because I liked his work so much. But I, I particularly appreciate his stuff on baseball. So you were appointed by President George W. Bush and then reappointed by President Obama. And, and I think it's fair to say those are two leaders with different temperaments, different ideologies, different approaches. What did you learn from both of them? I learned that being president is a really difficult job, <laughs> exhausting job. Um, it makes me wonder sometimes why anybody would want to be president, although evidently a lot of people do. They had somewhat different styles, but they shared, I think, the willingness to, what was very important to me, was that they both were willing to support the Fed's actions to, even when they were quite unpopular, that they respected the independence of the Fed, that I had a, a, a very good, friendly, and sound relationship with, with both of them. I, I knew President Bush a little better because I actually worked in the White House with him. And so more often with President Obama, I would work through his advisors like Tim Geithner, the Treasury Secretary, or Larry Summers. But in both cases, again, we had very respectful, thoughtful conversations about the economy, about the financial system. And again, I really appreciated the fact that they were both willing, you know, as Truman said, the buck stops here. They both were willing to stand up and do what was necessary to tackle what was, was one of the worst financial crises and followed by a very deep recession that uh, required strong responses. Something that is a theme in the book, and it's, it's, I think, a bit implicit in what you just said, is that you were only able to do what you needed to do because the Fed has a level of insulation. I think very early on in your book, you talk about that the Fed is a group that, that we act when others can't. Do you think that American government needs more institutions like the Fed that have insulation from an increasingly dysfunctional political system and are capable of acting and capable of doing difficult things uh, in moments of crisis? Well, it's a fine balance. You want to have the ability to respond in situations where fast action is necessary. So an example would be foreign policy or military mm -hmm. matters. At the same time, you need to have a process by which action taken in the public's name is accountable, that, that the public has a chance to express its opinion and have input to those decisions. We don't want to have agencies which are not subject to democratic oversight either. So that's, that's the fine balance. I think financial crises are kind of on the line between sort of a military-type model where rapid response is essential and oversight should take place over time versus sort of a domestic economic policy model where speed is not quite as important and a, a lengthy debate and discussion is, is a viable way to go. I guess I think that in the financial sector that it would make sense to give some emergency powers maybe to the president, much as the president has responsibilities and powers that he or she can invoke in a military situation, but that while emergency actions can be taken that you know, within a reasonable amount of time, as with de declarations of war and the like, that Congress would have oversight over those decisions. So you can balance the need for rapid action, for forceful action, with democratic oversight, 
if you take appropriately into account the, the time frames associated with different kinds of decisions. And when speed is of the essence, it is important that there be a mechanism for solving the problem in an appropriate time frame, but that's also accountable to, uh, mm-hmm. to the legislators. I think one model of American government right now that has some validity to it is that the institutions are capable of responding to acute crises, not always easily, not always smoothly, but they did pass TARP. They were able to execute the rescues, not just of the financial sector, but of the auto sector. A lot happened during the depth of the crisis that in normal times you couldn't have imagined. At the same time, there does appear to be a long-term trend towards less productive Congresses as measured by the number of laws passed. There's more partisan dysfunction, more gridlock. You can measure these in a lot of different ways. And I think one reasonable interpretation is that American government can deal with crises, but it has more trouble than at other times in its history doing forward-looking legislating. Even as we were, we did trigger things like sequestration and ended up cutting a fair amount of spending and ultimately raising some taxes. It was sort of all done through doomsday mechanisms and cliffs and automatic triggers and so forth. Do you worry about the political system's ability to make the prospective changes that keep an economy improving, running, growing, as opposed to just the sort of acute emergency mechanisms necessary to keep it from collapsing? Absolutely. We have, for better or worse, we have from the Constitution, we have a system of divided powers which has a strong status quo bias, which from a conservative point of view has its benefits. You don't want to be taking major major actions without extended discussion and debate. So that that's understandable. But when you have a political situation like we have now where, where the politics is very polarized and you have people on the left wing and the right wing and very few people in the middle, then only with the abyss looming, uh, is there enough motivation for the uh, two sides to get together and take action? But unfortunately, a lot of the things that are important for our economy over the medium and long term are not crises that will lead to disaster tomorrow, but rather are sort of, as Marty Feldstein once said, the sort of the termites in the basement kind of right. problem that need to be addressed, but you know, it can be addressed over time. Issues of, of education and skill training, skills and training, for example. It is worrying that Congress doesn't seem to be able, from a political perspective, to manage the more routine but very important uh, economic policy decisions that are needed to help the economy be healthy over the next couple of decades. You wrote in the book that you came into office a Republican and left an independent, and you said that you felt the Republican Party had left you and not the other way around. How do you feel the party has changed over your adult life or your time in, in public service? Well, there's been a general trend towards populist rhetoric and, and populist policies, which in, in some ways was predictable. Uh, it, it really comes from both short-term and long-term factors. On the short-term, Clearly, there was a, re- a reaction to the crisis itself, to the response to the crisis, the bailouts, you know, to the whole phenomenon, everything that was happening in that period. So that clearly uh, stimulated some of the populist reaction. But also, there's also long-term trends, including the trend to greater inequality, the poor condition of the working class, et cetera, that has, has also created a fertile ground for populist types of activity. And again, this was kind of predictable in that financial crises tend, tend to generate 
populism. The populism has been somewhat more on the right in the sort of the Tea Party type of area, but it, it also exists on the left. You know, unfortunately, looking at this from a narrow institutional point of view, the Fed, the central bank, tends to be one of the targets of populist right. rhetoric. And in that respect, it, it was probably more Republicans than Democrats that were attacking me personally, you know, during the, say, the 2012 election. But again, you know, you had people on both, and I don't think it's just a Republican thing. I think you did have people on both extremes who are convinced that the Fed is part of some kind of global conspiracy or otherwise cynically distorting the Fed's activities uh, for populist benefit. Did you ever end up incidentally or purposely meeting Rick Perry after the 2012 election? (laughs) No, I I had met him once prior to that just by uh, accident. No, I haven't. I haven't met him. But I did shortly after his comments about me, I made a trip to Texas and I had a very good time there. You didn't do anything ugly. And I uh, didn't have anything ugly happen to me. And uh, some of my best friends are Texans, as they say. So I don't take that particularly seriously. But, you know, what, what concerned me about those kinds of comments was not that I was personally in any danger, but rather that it suggested a calculation on the part of some politicians that antagonism toward the Fed was a, was a vote winner. And that, of course, bodes you know, badly for the independence of the Fed and its ability to pr- perform its critical functions in the future. You were talking a moment ago about how, particularly in periods of economic ferment or, or unrest, there can be an impulse to see the Fed as part of a global conspiracy. And it's something I've noticed reading coverage of the Fed and also getting a lot of emails about my coverage of the Fed is that what seems to really unnerve people about the institution is the idea that Ben Bernanke can walk into some room somewhere and press presumably a very large red button and a trillion dollars of money appears. I was hoping you could walk me through in a very tangible, concrete way when the Fed decides that more money, more liquidity is needed in the system. What does it do to create that money? How does that actually work? It's very opaque and very hard to conceive of process for a lot of people. There's a lot of misconceptions to attack here. I mean, I think I need to start by saying that the Fed has no fiscal authority whatsoever. The Fed does not spend the taxpayer's money. What the Fed is doing is providing short-term loans. Central banks throughout history have responded to banking panics by providing short-term loans to banks so that they could finance themselves until the depositors came back, basically. This is something that's been going on since the 1700s. So during the crisis as short-term financing was being withdrawn from financial institutions, and this was electronic financing rather than depositors lining up at the window, these institutions needed financing. And and what the Fed did was make collateralized loans, make loans to these institutions, took collateral that allowed them to survive the panic. And as things calmed down, they repaid the loans and they got back to normal financing. And that's what happened. So there was no spending of the taxpayers' money involved. It was short-term loans and every single one of them was paid back with interest. So, in fact, the Fed's activities have been pretty profitable for, for the government. The Fed also has been involved uh, as a separate matter, uh, was involved in uh, what's called quantitative easing, which was a monetary policy tool used once short-term interest rates got close to zero and couldn't be lowered anymore. Quantitative easing just involves the Fed buying Treasury securities on the open market. Basically, in this case, the open market desk at the New York Fed tells the treasury market as a whole and many participants in that market that the Fed is interested today in buying so many billions of 
Treasury securities, and there's an auction process, and purchases are made, and they're paid for by crediting the bank accounts of the sellers, and so they end up appearing as reserves that the banks hold with the Fed. So it's a circular process in that respect. It does not involve any money printing. The amount of currency in circulation is determined by what people want to hold. It does not involve any spending of the taxpayer's money because it's, it's a purchase of an asset, a security, mm-hmm. which pays interest and which has value. And at the appropriate time, that security either matures or it can be sold back and the money's recovered. In fact, again, the Fed is a very profitable institution. It's been in the sense that it, it earns a lot of money on the assets that it holds, the interest on the assets that it holds. And all that money after expenses, you know, after the cost of running the Fed is taken care of, the, the great bulk of that money goes back to the Treasury mm-hmm. and reduces the government deficit. So it's actually a profit center for the government rather than a drain on, on the FISC. But when the Federal Reserve's balance sheet goes much, much, much higher in a, in a compressed period of time. So it, I cannot, unfortunately, if I want to, start offering people tremendous loans in, in, in times of liquidity crunch. I think the thing that I notice in discussions of this is a confusion over what is happening at the center of that process. How is the Fed able to execute these large maneuvers when a month ago you didn't see that on the balance sheet? Where does that money come from? Where was it before that allowed for all for, for those loans? Well, again, uh, what the Fed is doing, are we talking about quantitative easing or are we talking about lending in the crisis? You can talk about either if you'd like. I, I just think, I just want to get, let's talk about quantitative easing in this case, because I think that, I think that's the one where you get a lot of fear, this idea that the Fed is doing something unusual, the numbers are tremendous, and they must just be kind of inventing money out of nowhere. So... Mechanically, what the Fed is doing is increasing its assets and liabilities in tandem. So it's just expanding its balance sheet, but doing so in a way that doesn't affect the overall net worth of the institution in some sense. And mechanically, as I was saying, what what the Fed would do in a quantitative easing operation would be as follows. The Federal Open Market Committee, which is the Monetary Policy Committee, would say, well, we need to do something to provide more monetary support for the economic recovery. And so the Open Market Desk is authorized to buy whatever, $85 billion in, in Treasury securities. So again, what, what the open market desk does uh, at the behest of the FOMC is it tells the private market, and there are many participants in the private market who trade securities among themselves all the time, says we want to buy $85 billion worth of government debt, U.S. Treasury securities, for purposes, well, the, the sellers don't care what the purposes are, it's just a market operation, but the purpose, of course, is for, is for monetary policy. But in any case, so again, the Fed would say, the New York Fed desk would say, so we're having a, an auction and tell us what, you know, what price you'll charge for selling us these treasury securities that you own. So the auction takes place and the, and the Fed desk buys the securities at the best price they can get. Every, every commercial bank has got uh, an account at the Fed, basically. So the same way you have an account at a corner bank, mm-hmm. Banks have accounts at the Fed. So the way the, the securities are paid for is by just crediting the accounts that the banks have at the Fed by the same amount, by the purchase price. And that, in turn, appears in the checking accounts or whatever of the sellers. So that's how it's paid for. It's all electronic. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, one way to think about this is that suppose you think about the government as a whole. Think about the, the Treasury and the Fed as one single yeah. institution. All that's happening is that this collective of the Fed and the Treasury is 
doing the same amount of overall borrowing that the government has to do, but doing it more in short-term borrowing rather than longer-term borrowing. So what, what a quantitative easing is basically is that the Fed is swapping out bank reserves, which are very short-term liquid assets, in exchange for longer-term, five, ten-year maturity treasury securities. It is just as if the Treasury had announced that it was going to borrow more in the short-term market than the long-term market. That's all it is. Right. Nothing else is going on. So it's not anything scary or, or all that unusual. And indeed, the Fed balance sheet today, after all the quantitative easing, is, is about normal relative to other central banks in terms of the size of the balance sheet relative to GDP. Mm-hmm. And then there is the more traditional tool, which is raising and lowering interest rates. One of the difficulties during the crisis was that we were already pretty much at 0% um, or very close for much of it. There are folks who argue, Larry Summers is one of them, that for reasons related to underlying drivers in the economy, we're going to have unusually low interest rates historically for a very extended period of time. We already have, and that's going to continue. If that's true, are there things the Federal Reserve needs to do in a broad way in terms of its own financial position or the tools it gives itself or asks Congress for that allow it to have more firepower if the zero bound is going to be near for the coming decades? Well, this is an important issue. If interest rates are going to be lower, and the markets certainly think they're going to be low for a long time, because you can see that even 30-year securities are right. priced at very low interest rates. If interest rates are going to be lower, then the risk of the Fed during a recession coming against the zero lower bound on interest rates could could happen more often than it has in the past. And that requires, you know, I think some serious discussions. There are various ways to deal with that. One of them is to use the non-standard policy tools like quantitative easing. But I think the better solution, although it may not be feasible for the political reasons we were talking before, the better solution is to have some contribution from fiscal policy. During a deep recession, if the Fed can't cut interest rates anymore, the Congress could approve spending on infrastructures or a tax cut, and that would solve the problem to a large extent. If that doesn't work, if that's not feasible, then yes, it is something that the Fed and the Congress need to think about over time, because it, it is likely to be more of a problem than we thought a few years ago. Although, you know, this was something I just personally, I, I, I was concerned about it. And I, when I became a governor in 2002, one of the very first speeches that I wrote, a governor, sorry, a governor at the, on the Federal Reserve Board, in other words, one of the seven people who right. oversees the Fed. When I, when I joined the Fed Board in 2002, one of the very first speeches that I wrote and presented publicly was about what the Fed can do when you hit the zero lower bound, and I talked about quantitative easing and some of these other, other strategies. So th- there are things the Fed can do when interest rates hit zero, and it would also be good to have some cooperation from fiscal policy, but I think it's a problem that has not yet been fully addressed and solved. There's an idea out there which is obviously politically unlikely, but, I, but I've always found interesting as a thought experiment at the very least, and it's been pushed by, among others, the economist Miles Kimball, which is if you could have, instead of the paper dollar being the store value, sort of an electronic dollar, if we can really move on some level to electronic money, then it would essentially be easy as a matter of, of technical operational work to have negative interest rates as well as positive ones. Are you familiar with these proposals? And I'm yes. curious what you think of them. Yeah, I think that something like that would work in the, in the sense that it could help get interest rates negative. So it would give the Fed more ability to cut rates, even when rates were started out at a very, very low level. But I, first of all, it's, it's kind of uh, Rube Goldberg in, in the sense that 
the simpler solution would just be to have reasonable fiscal policy that, that acts at the appropriate time. And secondly, as you point out, I think that it's not something that American public would be too enthralled with. I think politically it would be very, very difficult to get, get approval for that. So it's not, you know, it's, it's not something that I see as high on the priority list, putting aside whatever, it's, whatever the theoretical costs and benefits might be. It doesn't seem like something that politically is feasible anytime soon. We've seen a pretty sharp drop in unemployment at this point since the beginning of the recession. It took a longer than anybody wanted, but it's now down to 5% in the latest numbers. We also see signs of some weakness around wages, around labor force participation. There's a debate that has gained a fair amount of force recently in, in economics about whether what we are seeing is the aftermath of a deep financial crisis or whether the financial crisis has in some ways distracted us from a more long-term weakening within the American economy. I'm, I'm curious when you look forward 10 or 15 years, whether you think that something fundamental has changed in the engines of the American economy, or whether we're simply recovering from a very large bubble and a very large bust. Well, I mean, I, I think a lot of the things that concern people, rising inequality, lower participation, people being sort of alienated from the workforce in various ways, that's been going on for a long time. And it's a function of very powerful underlying forces like globalization, technical change. You know, the U.S. economy overall is actually doing pretty well, certainly compared to other industrial economies around the world. And looking forward, we have a lot of strengths, including our leadership in technology, for example. But what's been happening for quite a long time is that the benefits of growth and, and economic progress are not being felt broadly, and a significant number of people are being left behind, which leads to things like low participation rates because there aren't enough good jobs for people with low skills, and inequality of income and wealth. While the financial crisis obviously didn't help, those trends are long-run trends. And by the way, uh, you know, I, it's unfortunate that the Fed has been really the only game in town in terms of providing support for economic recovery, both substantively because you get a more balanced and stronger recovery if there had been more support from, from other policymakers, number one, but number two, because there's this view out there that because the Fed is the only agency which is really doing much about recovery, that anything that's bad about the economy, even if it's things that the Fed has absolutely no control over, like growing inequality in income, for example, that it must be the Fed's fault. And that's, that's bad, obviously, for the institution and bad for economic policymaking. You've mentioned income inequality a couple times in, in this chat. And there is, I think, an interesting debate as to whether income inequality itself, as separated from simply median wage stagnation or social mobility, is something we should be worried about. So do you worry about income inequality on its own terms? And if so, why? I'm more inclined to think about it as lack of opportunity. I don't think people necessarily care that there are people in the society with very high incomes so long as they themselves have an opportunity to prosper in advance and have their children you know, have better living standards than they did. So you can think about it as inequality if you want, but it seems to me that in some sense it isn't just the Gini coefficient, the measure of inequality that's the problem. It's the fact that there's so many people who have very low social mobility or economic mobility that they, they start off without, in, a, in a family without much education or without much, with low income, and their chances of breaking out of that are not what we would like. You know, the, the American dream is that people should be able to 
through the dint of their own efforts and talents, should be able to move, move up. And that happens sometimes, of course, but there are many people who feel like the game is rigged against them and they really can't make progress. So for me, opportunity, mobility is the key thing. You know, we've always had rich people. I don't know if that in itself is a problem. The main problem is making sure that everybody has a chance to, to participate in the good aspects of the economy. But Bernanke, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Hope you enjoyed that. I certainly did. I feel like I know a lot more about how it is to be the most powerful economist in the entire world, where if you make a mistake, everything goes to hell. I hope you had fun listening to that. We'll be back on Friday with a regularly scheduled episode of The Weeds from Vox.com and Panoply Network. Please rate us on iTunes. Please tell all your friends about us. Feel free to email me or, or the rest of the team at weeds at Vox.com. And we'll see you soon.